How are you all doing this morning? Good? Merry almost Christmas. Great that you're out there uh, for the Sunday before Christmas actually hits. Uh, Emily's already done a great job of talking about next Sunday. Uh, we won't have service at 11 o'clock, 2.30. As the, the, you won't want to miss, by the way, 2.30. We say we start at 3, but you do not want to miss Karen Reese on the harp. If you need uh, attitudinal adjustment from stress, uh, that's the best 30 minutes you can spend. Let me just pray for us. We'll get to uh, the Bible and see what God has for us today. God, thank you for that you love us so much. Uh, we thank you that you've shown it to us so much. Uh, we ask that you would just bend our wills to yours, our hearts to yours, and our minds to yours this morning, that we might be changed from our time with you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, begins the story, and here's how he starts it. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So how did the birth of Jesus the Messiah come about. Paul, uh, I mean, Matthew's going to tell us how it went down, just in case anybody's interested. And as he jumps in, he, he makes a kind of an interesting statement. He calls Jesus the Messiah. Not a bad thing for a Jewish fellow to do, but it shows that he has concluded, based on all he has seen, that this Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah promised all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, before we get too deeply into the text, I just want to talk names for a second because it might not be that obvious, right? The word Messiah is actually, follow this, a Hebrew word, and the Greek translation of that word, anybody know what that is? Huh? Martin? No, no, it's <laughs> uh, Christ. Christ is the Greek, Hebrew, Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, a lot of people think that Christ was actually Jesus' last name, you know, Mary and Joseph Christ and the little baby Jesus. That was not, that's wrong. It was his title. It means anointed one. And while we're on names, let's talk about the name Jesus for just a second. I know that the kids in the youth group are talking about this as well. Yasin and I have chatted about this. It's kind of funny that we're both hitting the same uh, message a little bit this morning. Uh, and I hope this doesn't ruin Christmas for you, but uh, it's important for where we're headed this morning. The name Jesus is actually a Latin translation for the Greek word for the Hebrew name, got that? Yeshua. That was his name, actually, Yeshua, right? Because in Hebrew, there's no J, and there's no J in Latin or in Greek either, but they translated it as J because they used to pronounce the J's as Y's. And when in Latin, they changed the, name, the pronunciation of J from Y to J, they didn't change it back. So we get stuck with Jesus or Joshua is kind of how we call him in, in English. So in reality, in reality, we have been messing up Jesus' name this entire 2,000 years. And it may, it may just a possibility, it may explain why some of our prayers haven't been answered because we got a God that's miffed at us because we've messed his name up for 2,000 years. Uh, just kidding. Uh, I think God's smart enough to know that if you're praying to Jesus under any name, Yeshua, whatever, Joshua, he knows who you're talking about, it's all going to be okay. <clears throat> but Yash Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. So, get this picture. When a fellow shows up in the first century in Israel claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Christ, and his name is Yeshua or Joshua, it got pretty exciting. Because everybody knows in Israel's history who Joshua was. He was this big-time warrior, a general, a military leader. And that's who Israel was hoping would show up. Someone to deliver them from their oppressors of the moment, those dreaded Romans. So, enough name-dropping, back to the account in Matthew. His mother, Mary, 
was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, we can all imagine what, that, what that's talking about. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So, big trouble brewing in River City. In a previous generation in Israel, Mary would have suffered some serious consequences for being pregnant outside of marriage. So, it's a big deal. Back then, you were pledged to be married by the age of 10 or 11. And people actually got married from the ages of 12 to 15. Uh, We didn't have, as we do in our culture, the uh, sort of habit of uh, becoming adolescents until we're age 30, right? They were, if you were 16 and not married, there were some issues, that's all to say. So she was found to be pregnant. People started finding out. Maybe Joseph for sure, maybe her family for sure, maybe Joseph, maybe some nosy neighbors for sure. And in the first century, you had some options if you found out that your betrothed, the one you were pledged to be married to, had been unfaithful. And Joseph was uh, up on his word. He knew all about the options. He could have landed on maximum humiliation for Mary. And uh, maybe he didn't land on that because maybe she, he thought she was a little bit, she was a little bit crazy. I mean, he comes home and she's there. And she goes, okay, honey, you're, you're pregnant. Which of the crazy boys around town got you knocked up? What's the deal? What's going on here? Oh, no one, Joseph. Uh, an angel appeared to me and I have been uh, gifted this child from the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's going, yeah, okay, that's going to really work well in the neighborhood. He's thinking, I'm supposed to marry this person, but she's got this crazy story. So he begins to ponder what to do. And so it says in verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. See, the law says you you not only don't have to marry her, but you probably should not marry her. Uh, The law says you ought to shame her. The law says you've got to do something, you know, to make sure that everybody knows you're not the father, you're not the one who did the miscarriage of justice by getting her pregnant. But he did not want, it says, to expose her to public disgrace. He didn't want to drag her to the city square and announce to the entire neighborhood that he's dumping her because she's pregnant, uh, making sure that everybody knows that he is innocent in this whole charade. He's caught, really, between law and and this sort of desire he might have for a little bit of grace. So it says he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I mean, he could do that. He could go to a local priest and sort of say, here, here, here's the situation, here's what's, here's what's going on. I just like to break this contract I have with this girl and this family. I'll go on my merry way. They can go on their merry way. And you know, eventually the gospel will settle down. Everybody will be okay. But as this, after he thought it through, But before he acted on it, this twice, it says, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and said, son of David. Now, okay, he wasn't literally the son of David, King David, but he was a descendant of, in the line of, direct descendant of King David. Not not an unimportant part of the story. And the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, why do you think he said that? Because Joseph was afraid to take Mary home as his wife. So they said, don't be afraid, right, to take her home. I know that you're thinking that if you do take her home, everybody's going to assume that you're the one that got her pregnant. Otherwise, you would not have married her in a million years. But do it anyway, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So, pretty important part of the account that we can't miss or we might miss what's really going on. See, nobody at that time was actually expecting a virgin birth, any more than they were expecting the Spanish Inquisition. 
Okay, that's just a nod to you Monty Python fans. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're just out of, out of touch with reality. Okay, but the concept of a virgin birth, see, was not uh, something anybody really expected. Yeah, there's a verse that Matthew's going to use and quote later on that talks about, from Isaiah, uh, a virgin will have a baby and you shall name him Emmanuel, okay? But the Hebrew word in Isaiah for that virgin that Matthew translates as such can mean a lot of things. It can mean a young girl, it can mean a maiden, it can mean an unmarried person. So in Jewish culture, at the time, all's, all's, all's what I'm trying to say, is at that time, no one really was expecting a virgin birth. No one was talking about the Messiah and saying, you know, okay, we're going to know that the Messiah has arrived because we're going to have a, ba a girl who's born, who's giving birth, and she doesn't have an earthly father to explain this whole thing. Everybody expected the Messiah to be a physical descendant of King David. In fact, even the Jewish religious leaders steeped in the Old Testament, uh, for them, a virgin birth would have sounded a little bit weird. I mean, this is something that they heard about in Greek mythology a lot, right? Uh, where gods had sex with beautiful women and they had these god-man-like creatures. Um, you know, Zeus was supposed to have fathered Helen of Troy and Hercules, for example. But, from, so for Matthew to have made this whole thing up about a virgin birth kind of really didn't help the credibility of his story because it wasn't necessary for Israelites to kind of buy into that to accept this Messiah. It actually kind of hurt the story because no one was really looking for that, right? It would have seemed kind of weird. They were perfectly willing to believe in a Messiah who did not come through a virgin birth. So the only reason then that Matthew would have included it in his narrative was because it actually happened. Because remember, the thing that people rallied around around Jesus later on had nothing to do with the virgin birth. It had everything to do with his resurrection. I mean, when people, when Christ was crucified and dead in the grave, uh, people weren't going, well, okay, he's died, but remember, he was born of a virgin, so we can keep the dream alive. No, they were saying, you know, he's dead, and he's going to stay dead. The resurrection was as much a surprise to them as it was to anybody else. So, all that points to this, to this fact, that Matthew probably would not have made this up, because it doesn't really help everybody buy the story. And yet, Matthew tells us, that an angel appeared to Mary, and an angel appeared to Joseph, and said, basically, this son that's going to be born to you is something special. He's been conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. And then the angel goes on to say this, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name. Drum roll, you know, the, 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 the landscape gets changes, the soundtrack gets big. You're to name him Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. Now, we don't know exactly what went on in Joseph's mind at this point. But a regular Jew would have been thinking something like this. Is this really happening to me right now? Did an angel just appear to me and talk to me? And I'm going to have a son that I'm not the father of, but that's okay? And I'm supposed to give him the name of this long-awaited Messiah, Yeshua, Joshua, the military commander? And when he heard that name, you know, he kind of figured out, okay, I think I know why this guy's coming. I know where this guy's coming, because for hundreds of years, we have been oppressed by all manner of people, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now these rotten per, uh, Romans. Yeah, Messiah, about time he shows up, he's going to do some whooping up on these Romans. And just like Joshua, the Old Testament, this is what we're going to get, we're going to get, we're going to get what's, they're going to get what's coming to him. But the angel goes on, you should name him Jesus. Because he will save his people. And Joshua's, uh, Joseph's got to go going, 
yes, I know that's what's going to happen. This is going to be so exciting. That's what Joshua did. He rallied the people and drove out all the oppressors so we could occupy the land that God gave us. And this Messiah is going to do the same thing. It's going to be just tremendous. I can't believe that I'm going to be the father of this kid. It's going to be so awesome. I mean, maybe, maybe God is, we thought God forgot us because we haven't heard from him in 400 years. But now, here he is, and this is going to happen. Let's get it going. And then the angel says something that blew, I think, Joseph's mind. He's going to save his people from their sins. Not, not from the Romans. From their sins. I'm not sure he saw that coming. And he, and he could easily have said something like this. Well, I, I know you're an angel and everything, but... I don't, I'm not sure that we as a people have a felt need for having our sins taken care of. We definitely need delivery. We definitely need saving. But if you get all the Jews together in the nation and ask them what their, mind, their main concern is, it's not going to be saved from our sins. It's going to be saved from the Romans. That's what we need saved from. Maybe, maybe, Angel, you're not familiar with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs because if you were, you, you wouldn't be hitting us with this, saving us from our sins. So here's, here's, the, here's the things we need. Here's, this, here's Maslow's deal. Our basic needs are physiological. We need to eat and have water. We need to be able to survive. Then after that, we need safety. We need something to keep us from harm. Then after we're safe, we need a sense of love and understanding and community, but we don't get that until we get the first two. So once we get all three of those, then we can elevate ourselves to personal self-esteem, and after that, we're going to be able to be self-actualized, right? Reaching our full potential. That's what we're looking for, full potential as a nation. So Angel, take a, take a look. Where do you see on that chart anything that's saving us from our sins? Does it, it doesn't even make the list. Anyway, we got a very sophisticated way of dealing with our sin. Already in place. Maybe you haven't noticed that on the hill in Jerusalem, there's a temple. Can't miss it. We can go to our temple and get saved from our sins all day long. In fact, our system, we have it listed every single sin and what we need to do to get rid of that sin when we commit it. But I'll tell you, angel who we do need saving from, we need saving from the Romans. And the Romans are the ones that need saving because they are wretched, wretched, wretched people. Now, that might have been how you and I approached the angel, but it was not how Joseph approached the angel. Let me tell you why. Pretty rich insight here. Turns out when the angel of the Lord talks, no one in scripture ever went, hey, I'm going to talk back to that guy. <laughs> when God speaks, it's over, right? Nobody says, hey, do you think that was God? Do you think maybe that was God talking? I mean, when God speaks, he doesn't stutter. He talks in language we can understand. And when he shows up, it's so clear that it's God, right? So the angel of the Lord shows up in a dream. Even though it's a dream, Joseph wakes up, and there was no doubt in his mind what he was going to do. In fact, when God speaks directly to mankind, it pretty much, pretty much overrules our free will. Because when God shows up in his majesty and his power and his glory, we pretty much lose our right to make any choice. When God shows up like that, it's almost like you take your hand and you say, I'm going to put this hand over this fire. I'm going to hold it there. And you can do that by your free will. But guess what? Soon pain's going to take over and you will withdraw that hand because the pain overrides your free will. That's what God does when he shows up in all his glory and majesty. I think that's kind of why God remains a little mysterious. He wants us to have the free choice. But if he showed up as he really is, it would just doom us all to follow him, right? So anyway, God appears to Joseph in this dream. And Joseph did what any of us would have done if God had appeared to us that way. Verse 24. When he woke up, 
he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Now, here's what I want to talk about for a few minutes as we're now deep into the Christmas season. Do you know why so many people, sometimes so many of us, are not moved when we hear that God sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sins? You know why sometimes we're a little bit like the people in the first century who heard that God was sending Jesus to save them from their sins, and they're like, well, not really something we feel like we need. We were kind of expecting a different present under the tree. And the reason I think that even 2,000 years later, sometimes when we are worshipers of Christ, we don't, light, we don't light up, we don't stand up, we don't fall on our knees, we don't feel emotional or sense something magical is happening when we hear that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins because that's exactly what the angel said Jesus is going to do. But sometimes that's not what we actually hear. Here's what we actually hear sometimes. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will forgive his people from their sins. And if we're not really careful, we reduce Christmas, we reduce Christianity to forgiveness. In fact, maybe for your entire Christian experience, a religious experience, it's been basically, well, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. But the good news is God forgives. Nobody's perfect, but God forgives. I mess up, God forgives. I mess up, God forgives. And for a lot of people, that is their entire religious experience. But the message of Christmas, the message Joseph heard in the dream, the message of the Gospels in the New Testament, it's much, it's much bigger than that. And if we have reduced Christmas to merely forgiveness, I think we've missed the primary message of Christ's coming. Because Jesus didn't come just to pay the price for our sin or to erase the consequences of it. Truth is, and if you've been around for two and a half years, you've discovered this already. In most cases, the consequences of our sin is not erased just because we put our faith in Christ. For example, if you, if you kill someone and you go to prison, and then if in prison somebody comes in and preaches the gospel to you and you accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, God forgives you, but you're not getting out of prison. You're going to serve the rest of your term. You still have the consequences to deal with. God forgives you, but the consequences can remain. So here's what Jesus said he came to do, to save us from our sins. He says he actually came to deliver us, to rescue us, to save us, to free us from the power of sin in our lives. He shows up in the spirit of Yeshua, of Joshua, the warrior king, to free us up, free you and me up from the kingdom of the dominion of slavery to sin. We have been promised in Christ deliverance from salvation from sin in our lives. Now, Jesus alluded to this all through his ministry. Uh, You may be remembering the story of Jesus. He's on the Temple Mount. And uh, the religious leaders are eager to find a way to trip him up, to track him, trap him in some way. So they decide they're going to do it this way. So they, they, they catch a woman committing adultery in the very act of committing adultery. It's not stated in the text, but it just seemed a little too convenient to me. And if we knew the whole backstory, I think there's probably a story there the religious leaders wouldn't want us to tell. But I can't go there because scripture doesn't. Anyway, they drag this woman through the streets, up the steps to the place the last place she would ever want to be, the temple. She's 30 yards away from when they're slaughtering animals. 
to cover sins temporarily, 75 yards away from the Holy of Holies, where God visits his people, last place she'd want to be. They bring her up and they throw her down at Jesus' feet and they say, hmm, this woman right here, caught in adultery, the law says we are to stone her. What do you say? Jesus knew what they were up to. He calls their bluff. He knew they weren't going to stone her, first of all, and they knew they weren't going to stone her at the temple. Nobody gets stoned at the temple, right? But Jesus says, okay, stone her with this little caveat. Those of you who have never committed a sin, you start the execution. And everything got really quiet. And slowly they all just kind of faded away. And then Jesus kneels down to the woman and he says two things to her. One's kind of famous, we know it really well. The one's not so famous. He says, woman, where are your accusers? They left. And he says this, neither do I condemn you. Meaning, I, right here, me, on the temple mount. We don't have to go over there and sacrifice an animal. You're looking right now at the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. I do not condemn you. I've got your back. That's the famous part. Basically, Jesus is saying, you are forgiven. And he's the only person that can forgive. He's, in fact, the religious leaders were always miffed at Christ because he, won around, he went around acting like he could forgive sins. And everybody knew that the only person who could forgive sins was God himself. And Jesus was probably going, hello, that should be a clue as to who I really am. But you sort of miss it over and over. Then he says this other thing. It's not so famous, but it's kind of, kind of cool. He says, go and sin no more. That is, you can walk away. You can walk away from your life of sin. To which we should be asking, if we, if we have brain cells that are functioning as we read the scripture, whoa, is that, e is that even possible? Is that even possible? Can a person actually be a cobra? Maybe. But can we actually leave our sin behind? Can we go and sin no more? Can we leave the notion of sin behind? Can we leave being captive to sin behind? Can we actually say no? Jesus later is talking to the Pharisees and he makes this incredible statement. John 10.10. 10, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Now, Life to the full. So when you, read, when you read scripture, you come across a phrase, you ought to kind of think, what does that mean? What, what is that talking about? I think it's bigger than just forgiveness, don't you? Doesn't forgiveness just put you back at square one? Doesn't really change you. Doesn't change me. But Christ says, I've come, and I'll, it'll make more sense to you once I'm gone, but you're gonna, I've come for a completely different purpose than just forgiveness. Come for more than just to forgive you. I've come to free you from sin. I've come to change your life for the best. They, they were correct to call me Joshua. Joshua. I have come to deliver you from something, not simply forgive you for something. Now later on, the Apostle Paul comes along, brilliant guy, Jewish Pharisee, steeped in the Old Testament, had, had it completely memorized. He started off as a persecutor of the church, but then he became a Christ follower. And his scholarship in the Old Testament gave him a whole lot of understanding about exactly what Jesus was really up to by showing up. And he put some theological language around the purpose of Jesus coming. And here's what he said in the book of Romans, which you've just been preaching through in the last uh, year. Uh, I think we were in chapter 6 when we broke uh, for a little bit of a, a break. We'll get back into it next year. 
he writes a letter to a bunch of Christians living in Rome, and he says this. Again, he's writing to Christians, so this is not applicable to everybody. But to Christians, he says this. Therefore, because you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Since you've declared Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, but by faith in what God said Jesus actually did, since you've done that, here's a, here's a command for you. And, and see, by giving us this command, it sort of implies, no, it's, it, it does more than imply, it states boldly that Jesus actually thinks this is possible. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It's, exact, it's exactly what Jesus told the woman at the temple. Go and sin no more. Don't continue to allow sin to be your king or your master so that you obey it. Don't allow yourself to stay under the leadership, the authority of sin. So, so Paul, Paul, are you saying that we got a choice in the matter as Christians? Yeah, that's what he's saying. It's why Jesus came, to deliver, to save, to rescue his people, you people, us people, from, not really forgiven for, but from sin. It's Jesus in you, operating as his life in your life. As he is in charge of you and his Lord, you're going to increasingly find that sin has less and less control over you. And just in case, we missed it. Again, I love this about Paul because he, he always wonders whether, whether we got it that first time through. He sort of repeats it. He says this, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been bought from death to life. So, hmm, we did not misunderstand what Paul said the first time because <laughs> he just repeated it. There is an option. There is a better way, like hunting and cooking simultaneously. It's a brilliant idea. Whoever thought of that should be, get some kind of award. So, so if your entire Christian experience is sin, get forgiveness, sin, get forgiveness, sin, get forgiveness, then you really missed the real reason why Jesus came. He says, I came to purchase you, to buy you, to pay the price that would move you from death to life. What's he talking about? We're talking about life and life to the full. It's not just being forgiven from your sins. It's being set free from the power of sin to change our lives. And Paul says it this way. I love it. For sin shall no longer be your master. Pretty awful. Paul kind of makes it look like sin is a character or personifies it a bit as some kind of power or force. It's, it's really just his attempt to describe what you and I experience all the time. We, we all experience this pretty much every single day. You know, where it seems like there's kind of two of you in operation, sort of the good dog and the evil dog. You're going, I, I, I want to do this, but part of me doesn't want to. I know I should do this, but yeah, part of me doesn't want to. I know I shouldn't do this, but part of me really wants to. And you know, what's going on with that? Paul says, look, don't make this too complicated. Don't make it difficult. Just call that thing sin that's kind of trying to derail you. And he says that that sin in you is no longer your master if you are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus Christ, if he's leading you, will never ever lead you into sin. And then at this incredible end of this incredible teaching, Paul summarizes with a statement a lot of us memorized when we were kids. It says, for the wages or the payment or the outcome or the consequence or the result of sin is death. And Paul hits on something you and I also know. 
You don't have to be a Christian to know this. You don't have to be religious to know this. You don't have to have to be a theist to know this. You can be a flaming atheist and know this. But allow me to use a theological term that Paul uses just to kind of describe it. Sin kills things. Sin kills things. Sin always kills something. Some of you have had a marriage killed by sin. Some of you have had your finances ruined by a lack of self-control, sin. Some of you have seen a relationship between you and your son or daughter killed by their sin or yours. Some of you have seen an addiction kill a relationship. Maybe even killed the way you see yourself. You look in the mirror, you do not like what you see. Why? Sin. Because sin has killed the way you see yourself. Wherever there is sin, something dies. Always dies. So here's the part I don't want you to forget. Even forgiven sin kills things. Sin that has been forgiven continues to kill things. Our prisons, again, are full of men and women who have prayed for forgiveness for their sin and God's forgiven them, but they may spend the rest of their lives in jail or a good part of their lives in prison because forgiven sin still kills things. But Jesus came into this world not just to forgive us, but to be Joshua. Yeshua, the warrior king, to deliver us from the dominion of the power of our captivity to sin. Because the wages of sin is always, always something is killed. But the gift of God is eternal life. And maybe when you were this as a kid, you were little and you thought, well, this means I get to go to heaven when I die. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Because the gift that you receive when you place your faith in Christ is a gift you receive now, in this life. You receive the gift of God's life, eternal life, a life free from the power of and bondage to sin. So even the prisoner in jail can be free. Because it's, he can live a life that is free from sin's control. That was the gift of Christmas. Not just forgiveness for, but freedom from the power of sin through faith in Christ. That's actually the gospel. That's actually the good news. This is actually Christianity. This is what Christmas is all about. Through Christ, you can have a new master. Through Christ, you're given a new master. Which means, if you are a Christian, and your religious experience has been what we talked about earlier, simply trying, failing, getting forgiveness, trying, failing, getting forgiveness, trying, failing, getting forgiveness, you are a bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You're wandering around in those ruby red slippers. And you don't know that you can go home any time you want. You can be free of sin's power any time you want. You can say no to sin as a Christian any time you want. And maybe like Dorothy, you just need somebody to tell you. So if you're a Christian, you need to hear this. Sin is not your master if you are in Christ. It's not your master. Lust is not your master. A lack of self-control in some area of your life is not your master. Alcohol, not your master. Prescription drugs, not your master. Anger, not your master. Jealousy, not your master. Your habit is not your master. When you became a Christian, you were placed into Christ. And Jesus came into this world to do more than just forgive you of sin. He came to set you free from it. You may say, well, I don't, I just don't live that way. Yeah. If you are a Christian, you may live as if sin is your master. You may say yes to it and allow it to be your master, but that's your 
choice. Because as a Christian, sin is not your master anymore. Unless you let it be. You can actually go and stop killing things because of sin. By saying yes to Christ. You can go and live life and life to the full. It's why it's not a bad idea if you're a Christian. <laughs> Maybe to start every day with a prayer. Where you give God all of you. You know, God today, I'm giving you my hands. What these hands do, I'm, I'm giving them to you. I'm giving you my eyes. I'm giving you my brain, what I think. I'm giving you my lips. I'm giving you my feet. I want to surrender all of me to you so that I agree with you this morning that you are my master. Sin is not. I will not submit the members of my body to a master that no longer has authority over me. See, when that gets in your head, it eventually makes it here. In fact, I got to believe that there might be somebody actually sitting here who can remember the day, maybe the afternoon, maybe the passage, remember the book, maybe the friend who explained this to you. And you remember the day it dawned on you, wait, wait just a minute here. I don't have to live my life as a prisoner to sin anymore? It's not really my master if I'm in Christ? I mean, it can speak to me, it can taunt me, it can haunt me, it can bait me, but it's not my master. So, if you're sitting here and you are not a Christian, because we've been talking a lot to Christians this morning, maybe you grew up in church but you kind of bagged it, I'll just say this to you. Sin does not have to be your master either. And if you ever get fed up, if you ever get tired of being dragged down, and you don't have to call it sin, you probably call it something else, that's okay, call it whatever you want. Lack of self-control, the way you were raised, didn't have good parents, got a scummy boss, whatever. We all got our excuses, I get that. I'm just saying, if you ever get fed up with you, if you ever get fed up with that self-destructive bent that you bring on yourself and the self-destructive habits that destroy most of the relationships that really matter to you, if you ever get fed up with that, I've got some great news. Christmas is a standing invitation from our Heavenly Father. You have been invited into a relationship where sin no longer has to be your master. And that relationship is not about keeping a bunch of rules. It's about what happens in that relationship with God through Christ. He will give you new life in Christ. Yeah, yeah, forgiveness happens. But the relationship of life in Christ will break the power of sin over you. So who needs Christmas? We all do. Anyone who needs to be saved from their sin. Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And why did he want to save us at all? That's actually for me the greater mystery. Because we all kind of know ourselves, don't we? But no one's looking. We all are not that lovable. But the answer is wrapped up in a verse you see on NFL games, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You and you and you and you and you and you. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, here's that word again, everlasting life. And, and you kind of know this, right? Genuine love is able to endure the imperfections that you and I have. If you have a great spouse who loves you, guess what? It's not because you're perfect, is it? It's because they overlook 
the stupidity. <laughs> they overlook the imperfections. They overlook the mistakes. They overlook the wrongs. And that's exactly what God says in 1 Corinthians, that love doesn't keep track of the wrongs. And that is God's love for us. And he can do that because his love knew every one of our wrongs. And he loved us anyway. There's no mystery about us with him. He loved us enough to volunteer to pay the price, to erase them from our record, and they disappeared. But he came to give us life apart from sin's control of us. It is an amazing love.